All right, guys, welcome to our sixth episode of Moving to New York. Today, I want to talk about a topic that I think hits close to a lot of our viewers. We're going to be talking about U of M specifically. And I think, Ash, you you definitely have a lot to say on this. (laughs) Yeah, we had a really, really good conversation with my good friend, Caroline, who we'll introduce here in a little bit. But yeah, it was an awesome discussion and I think a much needed venting session for me and Caroline on a lot of the things that are problematic (laughs) about U of M. So without further ado. So for the sixth episode, we have a very, very special guest on, one of my best friends, Caroline Giannis. She's an incredible reporter. We were both on the rowing team at Michigan together for a couple of years and... Yeah, she's just an all-around great person, really knowledgeable, and one of the best reporters that I know. So, <laughs> Caroline, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, gosh, that was uh, that was a really wonderful intro. Um, yeah, I hear a lot about you, Caroline, <laughs> actually, so it's nice to finally meet you this is, this is, on the pod. This is wonderful, Sid. I, I feel like I've heard a lot about you, too, so so the feeling's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> um, and clearly, Ash, you don't know that many reporters, um, <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but still... I'll take the it. best reporter that I know personally, for sure. <laughs> oh, like, I guaranteed. Mean, I mean, that's going on my one CV now. One. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, as Ash said, I'm Caroline, um, and I've worked for two years at Michigan Radio, which is Southeastern Michigan's NPR affiliate public radio station. Ooh, NPR. <laughs> yeah, I really you... like NPR. Who doesn't? I mean, I'm actually going to fight Ira Glass someday. I hate that guy, but I do like NPR <laughs> generally. But yeah, so I've, I I kind of just do a lot of things at the station. I've worn many hats, but mostly I do day-to-day reporting work. Um, anything that mm-hmm. they need me to cover, uh, I, I can jump on. I, I mean, anything Michigan-related. Chances are I've covered it. I've done the legislature. I've done the environment in Great Lakes. I've done education. I've done labor. Uh, I've even done a little bit of the auto industry, even though that's not really my beat. But you name it, and I, I've probably I've probably done something with it. So, so yeah. So if you're doing NPR Michigan radio, is that specifically like for Ann Arbor, or do you report on basically the whole state of Michigan as a part of Michigan radio? Yeah. So we kind of have statewide coverage specifically at Michigan radio. Uh, and so it is like very mm-hmm. much statewide. And then Michigan Radio is also part of the Michigan Public Radio Network, which is a bunch of different public radio stations from around the state. And so I have I've contributed stories for the network where it's like specifically like, oh, OK, other stations are going to pull this story in and use it for, for their local news programming. Uh, so. So, yeah, I've even actually filed a couple stories for the national network, which is kind of cool. Oh, that's super cool. So for like NPR for the whole U.S. Yes, I have. I've done a little bit of that. Not as much as as Michigan stuff, but I have. So definitely a good resume powder. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes when you like one time I was just driving with my mom, I think for one of Karthik's regattas or something like that. And I just turned on the radio. It was an early morning. I heard your voice come on. I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) What? (laughs) That's (laughs) That's got to be kind of a flex. Do you guys report those live? like is that live i've done some live stuff but really mostly it mm-hmm. is like me reporting the story out and then pre-recording like the rap in <laughs> i have mm. a i have a little closet that i have padded with like blankets and stuff my little own little home soundproof oh studio God. it's very funny but the sound is better your so. pod closet yeah your radio you're, closet. you're like you're like a old school podcast like you're a caster you know i mean i I really am i'm i'm basically a a podcast frontiers woman (laughs) 
Exactly. Yeah, I'm like a little like, intimidated, you know, <laughs> like being such a newcomer to the pod industry. No, I mean, yeah, I, I'm like, a big fan I'm of the I'm probably pod. doing something wrong. No. No, I feel like, Caroline, your whole career has actually just been leading up to your debut on our podcast, really. I mean, I kind of... this is your jumping off point to bigger things. <laughs> I kind of like to think peak. of it that way, yeah. This is, this. it's all downhill yeah. from here, really. Yeah, yeah, if you weren't exactly. working at NPR for two years, you would not have been qualified for our podcast. Probably, <laughs> I'm so glad I made <laughs> that. Like I will say, I will say that much. <laughs> I feel honored, honored, and blessed, truly, to have made the cut. Best moment of my life. <laughs> so, did you know going into U of M through the four years there that you wanted to end up doing radio, or is that something that just kind of sprang out of nowhere, like after college? Or I mean, it truly was a total surprise. I was mm-hmm. a backseat listener growing up. Like we used to have NPR on in the car, and so I've always listened to public radio. And so for me, it was always like, oh my gosh, this is like so cool. And like when I got to Ann Arbor, I started listening to Michigan radio. And so for me, it was just very much a fixture in my life. And then I was working uh, at the Michigan Daily as a copy editor. And then I I saw that Mm -hmm. the editor-in-chief, she had done an internship at Michigan Radio. And I was like, this is insane. You mean people can just, like, do this? Like, anyone can just, like, come off the street and, like, be on the radio? Like, sign me up. So I got my editor-in-chief to, like, get me in contact with my current boss, the the news director at Michigan Radio. And, yeah, I've been working there for two years now, which is crazy. And I feel, like, insanely lucky. Like, truly, I did, like, I would say I'm living the dream. But as, you know, growing up, and you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I didn't even realize this was, like, something you could do. That this was, like, something that I could do. Yeah, I really did not think this was like an accessible career. I thought you had to be like 50 years old and like very like (laughs) well versed. Not not saying you're not (laughs) like you don't have the wisdom (laughs) of a 50 year old. But I'm saying I, I did not think that you could just become like a radio no, host absolutely or not. podcaster no totally and i feel like every kid growing up at some point has wanted to be a reporter like a field reporter you know what yeah. I'm yeah i've always wanted to be like the 955 or 987 like just dude who gets on like right in the morning yeah. and just says a bunch of <laughs> mojo in stuff. the morning yeah mojo and i'm like who are these guys like, like i want to meet you in real life oh man isn't that the dream just like a morning show on local radio <laughs> You want to talk a little bit more about what some of the misconceptions might be about your job? Like, I feel like when you say reporter, a lot of people think of newsroom, but that's not necessarily what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously, when there wasn't a pandemic, I did work in Michigan Radio's, (laughs) like, newsroom, but I've been remote for more than a year now. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, so a lot of the stuff that I do happens pretty independently. Like I'm totally like constantly talking to my editors and coworkers like on Slack and stuff, but like I have an assignment and I kind of just report it out um, as it is. Um, And working in local news too, I feel like that's something that kind of confuses some people because I feel like, you know, you say reporter, people are thinking oh my god, the Times, the Washington Post, CNN. Yeah, it's, like, yeah, yeah. it's really, I wish I had those kinds of resources at my disposal. I promise you, local journalism, while it is important work, it is truly not that glamorous. Um, yeah. <laughs> it is some of the most important work. Like, the people who opened up the Epstein stuff was, like, the Charlotte Gazelle or, like, some random it, Yeah, like, I think it was the Miami newspaper. Herald. Yeah, that was local reporting. Yeah, the Miami Herald. Yeah. It's like you're at the forefront of any huge issue that might 
erupt you know yeah no totally um and i i think that's why npr the national network really values its local affiliate mm-hmm. stations so much like when the larry nassar stuff happened it wasn't like a national reporter coming in and being like okay what's the scoop it's local reporters who had been on that mm-hmm. story for a long time and were able to say to npr now like okay here's you know we we have a relationship with these people this is the story and it really does i think produce much better reporting than you might get if you just sent some random I, this is not a, a diss on the New York Times, but like if you just sent some random <laughs> national New York Times reporter to cover a story, you know. No, I was going to say that these large newspaper companies, they're funded by some of the worst people ever. And at least with like NPR and like public radio, it's publicly owned. So at least to a certain degree, it's more accountable <laughs> to issues that actually affect everyday people. I think so. Y- you've gotten to do some really cool field reporting stuff. Like you covered the Palestinian protests that happened in Detroit, right? How was that? That was really cool, actually. That was like kind of a, a surreal experience uh, just because like going in, like I didn't know how huge it was going to be, but right. like literally it was tens of thousands of people. It was insane. And that was actually kind of a very like it was like an easy story to report logistically because there was just so many people and so many like people were like just like willing to talk to me like I wasn't just like hanging around on a street corner like oh god I need to wait for someone to talk by to see what they think it was Mm -hmm. like no people like they wanted to share their thoughts like so that was super cool and it came through in the articles that you wrote like you could really tell that there was a lot of energy like at the place which I think is so cool that you're able to do that through like audio or like through writing I think that's Insane. It is. It's. I think it's one of the best parts of the job, the storytelling aspect of it. And, you know, I like to think of myself as someone who's very easy to talk to. And I think that does come through, like, in my work where it's like, yeah, I was able to start a conversation with these people mm-hmm. um, and, like, get some really, like, good, honest thoughts from them. Uh, and, I mean, that is just kind of one of the funnest parts of the job, like, just, like, getting to talk to so yeah. many people. And that, like, covering the, the Rally for Palestine, that was such, like, a perfect encapsulation of that. Like, just so many people to talk mm-hmm. to. Um, the energy was insane. It was great tape like awesome yeah vibes were good good. and that was the same time biden visited too he visited to see like the all-electric f-150 yeah (laughs) yeah i covered that too they they hung out like a few that just makes us sound like we're sponsored by ford (laughs) i'm sorry caroline sponsored uh, sponsored by ford built tough by the all-new electric (laughs) f-150 like i feel like we got 0.9 percent apr somewhere random Like, by the way, I just just picked up my lunch from my all-electric Ford F-150. F-150, now with 0.7% APR financing in Hutchinson Ford. That would be sick. Ford, if you're listening, reach out. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, you've been working at NPR, Michigan Radio, which is... I would say local journalism. Yeah, for Is sure. that somewhere you want to stay in the future? Like, what are some of the pros and cons of each? Because I feel like when people think about reporting, they think like New York Times, like Wall Street Journal, etc. Yeah. yeah. So we're wondering, what, what are your thoughts about that? No, that's a good question. Um, and I think that I do very much want to stay in local journalism. Uh, I, I've gotten very lucky in that I've had a very good experience at Michigan Radio. I haven't been hashtag me too or anything, which is, I think, a lot more <laughs> than some young female journalists can say. 
But yeah, I really, I've had such a great experience and it really does make me feel much more connected to my community. I feel like I know what's going on. I feel like I know how issues are impacting me and my friends and my neighbors. And so that's an aspect of local journalism that I really love. And I I, like, I love it here in Michigan, you know, just the way the job market is. I'm probably not going to stay in Michigan forever, but I do still want to like be focused on the local aspect of it wherever I go. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of young journalists really do want to go to like a big flagship, like like the National NPR Network yeah. or the Times or whatever. Um, and that I totally get that. I mean, honestly, not as an early career journalist, but as you advance, the pay is better. Um, it's more right. high profile, which I think people like. I think there's more chances for recognition too. You know, like mm-hmm, yeah. prizes and things like that. Like the Pulitzer. <laughs> Precisely. Um, but I don't know. I mean, there's awards for local journalists. I don't. I I like it. I like feeling my, like I'm a part of the community with my work. Yeah, my take on that was gonna be you see like the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these big journalism. <laughs> big like, journalism. They're companies. You know what I mean? They're not newspapers. They're they're companies. Like yeah. <laughs> They've done a lot of great work, no doubt, but a lot of the time they're really just like carrying water for like the worst people <laughs> in society sometimes. And like, I feel like at least with local reporting, you're a lot more accountable to the people in your community and a lot more connected to them. You I know? certainly Where, think Which so. you might not get working at a big like newspaper chain. No, I think so. I like to think so anyways. I mean, I actually have had people recognize me before uh, <laughs> based mm-hmm. on my voice. Really? Yeah. Yeah, no, I went to the... No way. Yeah, I went to this thing. There's like a Quaker house in Ann Arbor and they were like, they were providing some guy sanctuary so he wouldn't get deported by ICE. And I, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) pretty badass. But anyways, they granted him like a temporary stay on his deportation so he could like leave the house. And I went to like check it out, see if it was news or whatever. And I introduced myself to the woman. I was like, oh, I'm Caroline. And she's like, you're Caroline Yanez. And I was like... Oh, oh my god so you're familiar oh my. she knew you like right immediately <laughs> it was kind of crazy <laughs> it wasn't like a, oh like i i swear i've heard your voice from somewhere it was like right away yeah no she i was like Man. oh yeah hello that's gotta be another benefit of being in local news and local radio is that as opposed to being known by like a lot of people in a very spaced out like throughout the united states you can be a celebrity in like Tuscaloosa, Alabama, right? you know what I'm saying? Or something like yeah. that. Like you can just get like free food in your town every day. You exactly. Know? Are those the types of perks you're dealing with, Caroline? Like free food wherever you go? <laughs> Serious question. Yeah, you know, somehow I haven't achieved that level of local fame yet, but I'll know I've made it once <laughs> I get people just in random restaurants offering to, to buy me food. That's when I'll know. Yeah, or like kiss their That's babies. when you know that that's when you know you made it. Exactly. I guess that's yeah. that's the dream. Exactly. It is the dream. <laughs> that's every local journalist's dream. So you spent a lot of time reporting on issues related to the university too, right? Like a lot of people at U of M don't see kind of the side of the university that you might have reported on. Like we all have really positive experiences with tailgating, going to games and things like that. But for lack of a better phrase, I guess the university has a bit of like a darker side that maybe (laughs) you might be able to enlighten us on. Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, where to begin? (laughs) You're right. Yeah, Yeah. right. (laughs) Maybe you could just start with like what reporting you had done for Michigan, specifically University of Michigan specifically. Yeah, sure. A lot of my more recent stuff has obviously been pandemic related. Some might say that the university didn't do a good job 
handling the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> um, what an outrageous take. <laughs> I know. It's a hot, hot take. takes only. Hot take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I, I did a lot about that. Um, I've done plenty of pandemic-related reporting. I covered the GEO strike. That's the Graduate Employees Organization. And they went on strike right. due to the university not providing them safe working conditions and adequate pay during the pandemic. So I've covered that. Yeah. You, you talked a little bit about how U of M really botched the handling of the <sighs> pandemic. Yeah. And I feel like a, a big part of that was the fact that they raised tuition despite the fact that facilities costs were way lower because no one was on campus, right? Yeah, that was um, shockingly raising tuition in the middle of a pandemic was kind of an unpopular move. Um, who'd have thunk it? <laughs> um, yeah, that's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, so the way that the university handled the pandemic, uh, raising tuition costs was definitely a part of that. And a big part of that as well was the fact that the university has this enormous endowment, billions upon billions of dollars. Yeah. And they weren't willing to dip into that money at all to keep tuition costs low, first of all and also to continue adequately paying their employees and keep from furloughing employees or laying employees off. So many university employees took a pay cut or a pay freeze during the pandemic. Um, yeah. And the university was not willing to dip into their endowment at all uh, to kind of yeah. assist with that. Just to give context, the endowment is $11 billion. and. <laughs> For like the past 30 years, they've consistently been cutting the amount of the endowment that they use on operational expenses that would be used to cover situations like this. Where yeah, people, the whole point like, of having like an excess in your endowment is for these situations. And in like, you know, like a once in a lifetime world pandemic situation, they weren't willing to use what the endowment was meant for, Yeah, which is which is kind of fucked. Yeah, pretty fucked up. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> this is what Mark Schlissel said. We feel responsible to take a very conservative approach because investment yields swing, even though we're good at this. The needs of students who are on financial aid don't swing from year to year. And reading that, I was like, of course the needs of people who are Dude, on financial aid swings like from year worst. to year. Of course it does. We're in a global pandemic. Like Low-income students are literally suffering from food insecurity and inability to access housing. And you're like, yeah, their needs just don't change year to year. We just got to keep the stock going up, you know? <laughs> Yeah, dude. Very insensitive response. Yeah. Okay. Wait. I actually need to pull up this tweet because you just reminded me of Mark Schlissel being just a, a galaxy brain genius at all times. Yeah. Pull it up. <laughs> yeah. No. But basically, um, so the the B one one seven variant that came to Michigan. The reason B one one seven was such a big deal in Michigan was because it was from a University of Michigan student. It was first found in Washtenaw County. So there was an email. Is, is the B one one seven the the UK one? It is the UK one. And so there is basically there is an email that Mark Schlissel like had. It was from like a professor, and it was like with the Washtenaw County Health Department, and it was about the B one one seven cluster, and it had. It, it was just bonkers. I hope you're vaccinated, he wrote. This is about to get as bad as it's ever been. So, like, they knew how fucked this was. <laughs> they totally mishandled the <laughs> response. Oh, my God. And this whole time, Schlissel was involved in just bonkers, Big Ten bullshit. <laughs> Emails, that, here, this is the article. Emails obtained by the Washington Post reveals that presidents and chancellors of the 14 Big Ten universities took steps to keep their discussions of reopening their campuses amid the coronavirus pandemic from ever entering public view. And this is the email that Schlissel oh sent God. to the woman from Nebraska. 
Oh my god. Becky, if you simply delete emails after sending, does that relieve you of FOIA obligations? I share your concern, of course. So FOIA is the Freedom of Information <laughs> Act, and that's how we reporters get public records. Get information, oh yeah, on these god. public records. He's like Be actively involved in like stifling like and hiding <laughs> conversation around his mishandling of the yeah, pandemic. Yeah, I know. There's Schlissel <laughs> in his freaking inbox deleting all these emails. Oh Can't be FOIA if I've deleted it. So going back to the endowment stuff, do you want to talk a little bit about this 2018 Free Press article? So the 2018 Free Press did like a huge investigation into where the U of M funds and their endowment go to and how they utilize it. Yeah, I mean, the Free really knocked it out of the park with this one. This is a fantastic investigation. Mm -hmm. To anyone listening, please yeah. go read this investigation. Um, but yeah, it's super cool. Well, the content is not super cool. <laughs> so basically, with this multi-billion dollar endowment that the university has, the university basically invests in these firms and companies, hedge funds, etc. And none of the endowment goes to actually providing better experience for students, lowering tuition, paying employees. Mm -hmm. They invest in these different firms owned by donors, people who donate to the university. A lot are alums, yeah. not all are, but it's basically just investing in the companies of the people who donate. It's like bonkers insanity. It's literally like an investment fund for donors. Yeah, it's like a public institution. I was trying to think of like an analogy for this. And the only thing I could think of, it'd be like if you found out UPS was investing in Tesla or something like it'd make, <laughs> it's like a public institution. That would be you know fun, what I mean? Actually. And they're investing in like, I would love it if that's I mean, that could out. be cool. Like, <laughs> like a te like a Tesla X, like uh, UPS truck or something. Or no, not UPS. I meant like the post office. Imagine like the post office. Was invest invested in, in Dunkin' Donuts, you know? Oh, the partnership <laughs> of a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> that I actually mean, makes it sound a lot nicer than it, it is. It's just but. crazy because I think the Free Press also said this in their 2018 article that they've been systematic, or not systematically, but slowly reducing the amount of the endowment that goes to students per year. I forgot what the term is. The one where it's yeah, like it started at like budget. Yeah, operations budget where originally they were putting in like 5.5% in the early 2000s, late 1900s. And then and over time, 4. it's 4.5. Yeah, 4.5%. And it just makes no sense. Like, why are you reducing the amount of money that are going to students? No. And then Ash, actually, you mentioned this to me before. What was it that you found out one of the companies that the university was invested in? They were doing some pretty... I was doing research on like where the money and the endowment is going to. Obviously, we all mm -hmm. know there's a huge amount of it that was going to fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel interests but i did some more information on it and they're literally investing in they put a hundred million dollars into this company that profits off of political instability and economic unrest in brazil basically it's this company called sigler guff and company which profits off of the economic depression by basically suing the brazilian government and helping corporations skirt regulations in that country and this is like an actual quote the regent's office or whatever about the prospects of this investment they said the backdrop of brazil's worst ever re recession provided a valuable window for backing legal claims the university said <laughs> in an investment memo so they were like literally like yeah, this like life once in a lifetime economic recession that's devastating the people of Brazil. Great opportunity for investment. <laughs> Very. And I just like, think not, that's so much fun. And, uh, <laughs> it's like that's like the kind of companies they're investing in, and it's like BlackRock and like 
shit like they're invested in numerous ways Wait, in the Israeli government, like companies affiliated with Israel as well. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is BlackRock direct link to our last podcast with Israel? Yeah, and they're very resistant to like changing their endowment, what they're invested in, on the basis of social causes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I do just want to kind of also say, just in terms of financials, this isn't University of Michigan specific, but I did want to bring it up just because it's something that a lot yeah. of public universities do that people don't know about. But like, if you look at Michigan State University, what happened with Larry Nassar, um, so basically they requested that the Attorney General of Michigan do like an investigation, and the Attorney General requested some 6,000 documents from the Board of Regents at MSU. And the Board of Reasons wouldn't give them these documents. And you're thinking, okay, why? Basically, it comes down to MSU has an insurance policy against sexual assault. So with these, like this big (laughs) NASAR case, they had an insurance policy. And the insurers would pay all the people who got money in the NASAR settlement, all those victims. And so the reason they wouldn't give the Attorney General those documents is because there could be proof that they knew what Larry Nassar was doing. And if they knew, their insurance policy wasn't going to cover the settlement. (laughs) Oh, my God. So just when we're talking about university financials, this is the kind of stuff we're dealing with. It is insane. Like, an insurance policy. Yeah, there's just a huge conflict of interest. It is. At every level. Like... Like the the people on the board of regents are literally accepting donations from hedge fund managers who they ultimately end up giving <laughs> millions of them. dollars in public funding to. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, no, it's insane. It's like I I understand how it came about where it's like okay we want to use this huge endowment to grow the fund, but you run into these like when it's unchecked you have all sorts of problems where all these rich donors are just using University of Michigan to just like, yeah, and like make themselves more rich. It's kind of a vicious cycle between like the donors and and the the university. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also, like you said, the endowment, the purpose should be to help students, right? Like it should go to operational expenses that reduces tuition, keeps tuition costs low and like expands the number of lecturers and things like that that they have, right? And professors that they have. Yeah. But exactly. when we talk about how they progressively year by year reduce the amount of operational budget that they actually take from the endowment, U of M Regent Mark Bernstein, there's this quote from him. His rationale for that is that the university has a horizon that's infinite and it should reflect that timeline. That's so It ominous. is never a good idea to trade long-term stability for short-term impact. But right now it's like, if you follow that reasoning to its logical conclusion, you should never ever spend money in the endowment because it has always will have more value being invested than if it was actually going to students. Yeah, it's it's like he's totally shifting what the purpose of a university is. Like the purpose of the university is not to just grow its bank; it's to help these students who are there for like a short term period of time. You know. Well, and the University like, of Michigan yeah. is already like. I would hazard to say probably the public university in Michigan that is the most inaccessible to in-state students just because of the cost. Mm -hmm. Like, Well, that's what I was going to say is that the median student household income has gone up dramatically at U of M and you're admitting more and more kids who are from out of state who are really, really wealthy and lower and middle class students are just being saddled with huge amounts of debt if they even get accepted, right? Yeah. No, yeah. Absolutely. And tuition is way higher. Like way yeah. higher than it used to be. 
yeah no for sure disregarding just like the small increase that happened over covid like if you look over the past 20 years that's true and i w- i do just also want to say like it is ab- like the un- the way that the university is like functioning with the endowment and like these student costs it's untenable but i will say mm-hmm. the state of michigan also does n- like, chronically under invests in mm-hmm. education yeah. in public education at the university level at the high school level at the primary level so i think that combined with the way that the university of michigan functions and it doesn't use this endowment like it doesn't have adequate financial aid for all of the low-income students that it like could be admitting could be helping combined like with the state's like disinvestment in public education you just have this really unsustainable formula for public education like it's it's it, it just doesn't work I was just gonna say like after the 2008 recession you saw this like obviously states had a lot of a lot more deficits and things like that and you see this huge reduction in state and national funding mm-hmm. for public colleges so public colleges they now feel like oh we got to max out our endowment to be like more like private colleges basically to make <laughs> yeah. up the difference yeah no yeah it doesn't even how is it even a public college i like, mean you... it's acting like a private college you know absolutely yeah, no, for sure. When you look at all these endowments of like the wealthiest colleges like in the country, Michigan's way up there. Maybe top 10? Yeah. Wouldn't shock me. And also like the purpose of a public college was to not be schools of the elite, like mm-hmm. richest people in the country. You know what I mean? The purpose of like a state college was to be like a path to like accessible f- for any people student. from low income backgrounds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From within the state who are paying taxes to fund the university itself. A place like U of M, it has gone so far from that mission, especially in these past like 30 years. And a lot of that is resulting from the way this endowment is handled and the state of public education funding in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I don't know if you, Caroline, or either Ashwath or Caroline, you one of you brought this up. It's not like U of M is like, yes, they're kind of covering it up, but they are also trying to market it as if this is like a great idea. Oh, yeah. They're trying to they're trying to market it as trying to be like socially woke. Yeah. The mission driven. And that's what I was talking driven. It was mission yes, driven yeah. investing or whatever that. Yeah, I can talk about it basically to make the optics look better. They say they're going to put more emphasis on what is called mission-related investing. So they're going to take a small part of the endowment and spend it on improving social outcomes. But this is so stupid to me because literally, if you're trying to improve social outcomes, make the tuition cheaper. Like, it's not that fucking hard, you know? Like, the number of low-income students at U of M has decreased so dramatically. The number of, like, minority, indigenous, black students has also proportionally decreased dramatically in the past 20 years. Literally, you growing your endowment is doing literally nothing to help those social outcomes. And you putting, like, oh, here, like, we'll sweep a little part of it to the side for improving social outcomes. That's, like, what you're literally like you're not a hedge fund you're a school you know like go off Oshawott. like that when you said the quote i was just like what the fuck like why like this doesn't even make any sense given like the climate or what's going on at michigan currently dude like mark schlissel he's literally literally more a hedge fund manager than the dean of a university yeah i know what's the point of even getting the freaking immunology degree at that point yeah he's like a he's a doctor i can't 
that was the worst part of the way he handled the pandemic. Uh, so I was like, dude, you're literally an immunologist. How can you be so like zero brain, like just no brain in your head, you know? No, you yeah, know, but OK, going back to what you were saying, Ash, about like investing in positive social outcomes. I just think that that's so ironic when you look at the impact that the university has on like the greater community like in Ann Arbor and honestly in Ypsilanti too. Oh yeah. Because I mean it totally impacts Ypsilanti too because it's so fucking expensive to live in Ann Arbor. Everyone moves out to Ypsilanti and there goes the Mm -hmm. gentrification starts. But like the university doesn't pay taxes in Ann Arbor. And so you have all of this good that they could be doing in their local community and they don't do anything. Like during the pandemic, like you were saying, like facilities costs were down. Students weren't in dorms. People weren't using like the gyms, like the IM building. Like, Mm -hmm. and local homeless shelters went to the university and they were like, look, we want to keep social distancing requirements, like, but we can't take any, like, can we please use university facilities to like, house literal homeless people, people which is a huge problem in washington county and the university was like hmm no like what like you want to talk so... about like social responsibility like that's it you could have done that's that. so insane to me man like i'm just there's thinking so many every... u of m buildings there's so many u of m every, buildings. every summer students go back home there's thousands of rooms on campus there was a homeless problem in ann arbor literally why don't we just put them in that housing and help them get back up on their feet so we don't have a homeless problem anymore you know what i'm saying and it's just like the the absolute greed of the u of m board and the regents it's just insane to me it's unconscionable the thing is too like these homeless shelters they weren't like saying like oh like like they were fully being like our our employees our volunteers we will handle everything we just need the space yeah like truly asking for the bare minimum from the university it is bonkers it's literally like you have 50 athletic fields you put like 13 trillion dollars into developing your athletic facilities literally you could have just any one of those indoor facilities just put like some homeless people in it it just doesn't even make sense to me man i'm just like how could you even be like that like that's so evil i I, you know i truly like the solution to a problem right there this was an actionable thing you could have done this was a social outcome you could have helped improve like but no yeah mission driven mission driven impact (laughs) oh my god if we want to keep rolling on on how u of m doesn't actually support social change or support social causes we could talk a little bit more about how u of m received an f grade on racial equity in public university study and it's like all that increase in tuition it goes to increasing the number of administrators and the administrative bloat throughout the university if there's anything i've learned from working with university administration like with the rowing team i was also on like a couple boards at the university it's that the administrators don't exist to help the students they exist solely to protect the institution so it's like all this like increase in tuition it's being put on the backs of low and middle income students and it's going to help the university fuck them over more, basically. Well, and then you want to talk about... Yeah, like, it's just super top-heavy. You want to talk about, like, yeah. the administrators, like, protecting the institution? That's why you see, I think, yeah. so much of the mishandling of sexual assault cases and Title IX cases on campus. Like, there have been a couple high-profile ones. Um, 
like there's been an alarming yeah. number of high profile ones like just three within the eeks department it, over the course of like two years yeah which is crazy like hi, like high level like deans of the schools or chairs of. it's the like not a coincidence you know you what know? i mean like <laughs> It's how the system is designed at that point. No, absolutely. And it completely screws over like the actual people who are impacted. Like you look at uh, Martin Filbert, who is the provost, like provost. I never know how to say that word. Provost, yeah. whatever that is. <laughs> Just an administrator. <laughs> but no, people knew for years before he was the provo provost, provost, whatever, before he was in that position, like while he was still like doing research, like as a professor, like people knew the way that he like was around women and it was just like an open secret and like he still got all these promotions yeah. all these raises all these grants like no consequences no disciplinary action yeah so the sexual so for anybody not from michigan like basically this started off as like a research assistant research professor i don't know what he started as in like the early 2000s from that point he was cr like creating problems because he's literally a sexual predator and he was just getting promotion after promotion until he literally became like essentially the dean of u of m in 2020 and then only in 2021 i think did they did his like cases finally catch up with him it was super recent crazy. yeah no it was yeah it was just like truly insane how the system is just designed to like protect horrible people and abusers and <laughs> no it's crazy because i mean like you said sid there's three people just in the east department there was another professor in the school of music theater and dance a couple years ago not to mention the most recent allegations of abuse from the university of michigan athletics department and all the stuff that bo schembechler did in terms of protecting abusers with the football mm -hmm. team it's insane. It's like the institution is rotten from every level of the administration. And it's crazy that our tuition is going to pay their six figure salaries while student they raise tuition for poor, like low and middle income students. That's like that blows my mind. What you yeah, the administration is just so bad. Uh, Caroline, what were you saying? No, Ash, what you said about Bo, I think, is so like emblematic of the larger problem like talking to so basically again if you don't know this is pretty high profile news people probably know but just in yeah. case Bo Schembechler iconic football coach at the University of Michigan his son came out recently and said that he had been abused by a University of Michigan doctor who worked like with students like in the clinics like did athletics physicals and stuff this was back in like the 60s 70s 80s and stuff basically Bo Schembechler's son had told his dad when it happened hey this happened and Bo basically said you need to toughen up to his own kid so there's no way that Bo yeah. didn't know about all the abuse that was going on but what Matt said was that his dad went so hard for this doctor Dr. Anderson the fact that when Matt, Bo's wife went to the athletic director and was like you need to fire this guy Bo went and prevented him from being fired because Bo was so invested in this idea of the institution, of the team, of this, of the administration, oh basically. God. And he saw this doctor as one of his team members. And he saw this as a threat to the institution of the team. And, like, the lengths that he went to to protect this abuser, this predator. Like, he was willing to sacrifice, like, his son for the this idea of the institution. So I think that that is just so emblematic of kind of just the rot in the institution 
you know? Yeah, and that's exactly how administrators handle when students are involved in these kinds of situations now, right? Like there's just like no power given to accusers and all the power given to assaulters as it stands right now. Yeah, I mean, the EECS department had the or electrical engineering computer science department had like exact same problem, problem with Jason Mars specifically, like The Verge, like high profile newspaper, wow, wrote a Verge huge piece about. I didn't know that. That's yeah, crazy. The Verge is the one. Yeah. Who, who, broke oh who broke it it wasn't i don't know if, i don't know if local journalism picked it up first because i could believe that but i heard about it from the verge specifically i mean the fact that it was um, in the and verge Jace, is crazy yeah and yeah. they were the one who were doing the reporting like this guy is like a sexual predator jason mars who runs like a startup which is very closely connected to the engineering school and this guy jason mars was like running like a program or like a program slash internship slash class with his startup called clink and so many students were saying like this guy cannot teach a class here he wasn't even really like a tenured professor he was just on some deal and even after like so much pushback from students the university knowing about this the verge releasing this publication they still chose not to remove him or just this class something so easy to do like it's one class you know like this is so crazy because they literally made an entire dei department to kind of like signal that they care about these kinds of things but when it actually comes down to it they're literally protecting abusers it's just so hypocritical to me man it's just like yeah it just makes me i don't know if you can tell but i'm really angry right now. like <laughs> yes. it just pisses me off no, I mean, it should. Like, for example, when I was, like, on a board at the... I was on, like, the Office of Student Life board at the university. And, like, the kinds of things that they had us providing input on is, like, hmm, what color do you think we should make the accent wall in the cultural center that we're building? Or, like, hmm, how can we uh, help students feel more welcome? What mural can we put up in Southqua that'll make uh, Latinx students feel more welcome? And it's, like, you know what would make people feel more fucking welcome? if they weren't having to like economically struggle and work three jobs to make their tuition, you know what I'm saying? Or if they had a community, like there was actually a substantial amount of minorities and low income students who were able to be accepted. Or you know? if they didn't have to go to classes taught by sexual predators. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's simple, what, what I mean when I say that the role of like these university boards that they put students on is make it seem like they're giving students input on these like really important things for the university, but actually you accomplish nothing. And no offense to CSG, but like central student government is also kind of in that same mold in terms of the actual impact that they have on crafting larger university policy, I feel like. Yeah, you know, I mean, they all seem very well intentioned, but I do feel like I never know what it is they do do i'm like glad you guys are yeah. having fun yeah it's like there was this huge protest to get csg to write a statement about palestine and asking the university to remove any of their endowment investments in the state of israel it took so much fighting just to get csg to release a statement which obviously like the provost and the people are gonna be like all right just throw it in the trash just shred it like they have no impact on where the endowment goes and shit like that, really, you know? They can just make statements. <laughs> that's so, I mean, that's so sad. Like, that's terrible, but, like, it is just, like, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I do feel like, as a student, it is kind of very, it sucks to, to know that, like, this yeah. is all the stuff that, like, your university is, like, involved in and they still want you to buy in so hard. But, like... 
I don't yeah, know. Yeah, go blue. <laughs> I don't know. Wouldn't you rather, like, know than just, like, not, like, just not be aware of the university, like, I don't know, doing war crimes for you, their student, who they're not even going to lower tuition for? I mean, it's just sad because I truly had, like, a great experience at U of M, you know? Like, I loved my four years at U of M. And some of the things U of M offered me, like, definitely helped me in my career and personal life. But it just sucks to see, like, so many other easily avoidable problems or like apparent problems like exist well you're shielded from it when you're a student at the university you're kind of inculcated into the cult of u of m a little bit you know between like just getting drunk every weekend (laughs) and like you just don't have time to like think about the broader implications of like university policies a lot of the time like a kid you know what i mean implication that ricks is doing so much of u of m's marketing yeah Yeah, exactly it's just sad because like i i want it, it, it like adds an asterisk to my like experience at U of M, you know, like I can say like personally yeah. it was great, but do I think U of M's like great to this world? I have to think about it a little bit more now, you know, because of all the administrative issues that and problematic investments that they have. I do feel like we should also like say too that like, it seems like we're going in like really hard on the University of Michigan, but chances are this is like most major universities most large universities yeah. any university with the size of endowment that michigan does like this they also have a lot of these same problems like college is a i'm sure harvard you know? has this exact same problem they're like, for sure worse dude i guarantee it i'm pretty <laughs> sure harvard is just like war crime university that's the impression i get dude literally like yeah i saw this one tweet and it was like the experience of going to Harvard is getting free donuts offered to you in class and then realizing your roommate is the son of a war criminal. Like, wait, literal okay, war wait, criminal, Ash, you know? okay, you, this can't be on the pod. I know that this person's going to listen to it. You have to edit this part out of the pod. Yeah. But I do, I'm, I'm friends with a girl who went to and she and she dated this guy yeah. and literally she had that exact experience her dad is like a wanted perpetrator of war crimes like he tried in the hague oh my full god nine yards that's so dude that's crazy. what i'm like so many of these universities they're they're institutions of the elite who are a lot of the times like these really shitty people who run these hedge funds that are just invested in the worst things known to society u of m is trying to be more like these elite institutions like harvard yale and princeton and it's like that's not what you're supposed to be like it's a public school it's not like some private institution of the elites you know what i'm saying yeah they should be doing more to serve the people of michigan like not just like students and in-state students but also like the community that like they're in like actually providing like yeah for the communities that they they impact and not brazil Yeah, I mean, everybody talks about, you know, like Ann Arbor is such a great college town, like because it's so integrated with U of M. It's just like sad to hear that U of M like isn't doing it isn't doing a lot to like help Ann Arbor as a city. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's just like very exploitative, parasitic relationship. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's like it's like hesitant or like students are hesitant also to like criticize you. You I'm like, I personally like it like took me a while to like realize, okay, like u of m like is problematic in some ways right like i'm not saying all of it is problematic and that it shouldn't exist but like if you have such a great experience there like it's hard for you to like see fault in u of m so no No, you're totally right yeah did you guys want to talk a little bit about takeaways solutions final thoughts 
I think Sid kind of really hit the nail on the head like it does suck to like hear all these things and as a student you don't want to like think that but I think it's far better to be aware. I think like <laughs> you know coming from someone who works in local journalism it can be very easy to kind of feel overwhelmed at like the enormity of a lot of bad things happening so I think like if I were going to give a piece of advice it would be start small like you know for example if you're someone who's looking to like make legitimate social change i would say start at the local level start there and mm -hmm. like because that's a way you'll be able to see positive tangible change in your community mm -hmm. and so i'd say the same thing about the university like start small like find the climate activists yeah. like get on the university's ass to like start going like to stop investing in fossil fuels you know like start calling out right. hypocrisy listen to the people who you know have had legitimate complaints with the title nine office like you like truly right. start small this is similar to my take too is that you know i talked a lot about how like working within the administrative structures is intentionally designed to silence any kind of dissent of the university and protect the institution so i think like if you're going to try to change the university which desperately clearly needs change you have to work outside of established systems of power yeah. like i know u chicago has this organization called alumni against u chicago <laughs> and it's like it's a group of alumni they've signed a thing they're like we're not going to donate to the university of chicago or any of its affiliated institutions unless they meet x y and z demands that's the kind of solidarity we need to be building and on top of that like Columbia University, they had a tuition strike, one of the largest tuition strikes in history a couple of years ago in response to rising tuition rates. And like students, low income students there were suffering from genuine food and housing insecurity and the university wasn't doing anything to help them. These things can really work. It just requires buy-in from a lot of people and you have to have the bravery and the belief that it can actually create change, you know? That the this mm -hmm. alums against U Chicago thing is actually like really cool because I feel like like my boyfriend also graduated from the University of Michigan. Like he is constantly yeah. getting stuff like, hey, give us money, give us money. Like if a ton of people stopped giving money, like, I don't know. I just, I mean, that would be just like, I think it would be funny, first of all. <laughs> yeah. Why, why am I paying the University of Michigan to raise tuition on low income students? That's bullshit, you know? I just think given the administration, like I would be worried that if I was in a position to give money, I would actually be worried that that this would worsen the situation for students, given our current administration, you know, like yeah. how yeah. they're handling things like they're clearly putting their own pockets over the students with this endowment fund. I mean, like also too, like, you know, if you're in a position to like give money to the university as an alum, I would suggest maybe finding a black or brown student, a person of color, someone who's struggling financially and ask them for their PayPal or their Venmo instead. You will be doing <laughs> exactly. much more direct good than you would be than if you donated to the university. Yeah, as I've learned from working within administrative structures, when you donate to university affiliates and institutions, it'll go to paint a new accent wall in an administrator's office and not to actually helping students. That's so funny. God. Tough stuff. <laughs> Tough stuff. Caroline, do you have any plugs before we go? Well, I would say support local journalism. Uh, if you're in Michigan, you can tune into Michigan Radio. We're 91.7 in Ann Arbor, Detroit. You can read my stories, read my bylines. <laughs> and you can follow me on Twitter. That's C-M-L-L-A-N-E-S-1. 
CM Giannis was taken, unfortunately. So I am CM Giannis one <laughs> on Twitter. But yeah, uh, and nice. then if you're not in Michigan, you know, support local journalism wherever you are. That's my plug. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much yeah, for having me. Yeah, it was me. great. This was so much fun. And we're back with another highly awaited Love Doctor segment. Let's just say there's more going on in Florida than COVID right now. Dear Dr. Sid, I've been seeing my girlfriend post snaps of herself partying with random dudes in Miami. I'm in New York and we've been in a long distance relationship for a year. She said that they were just friends from work. She's a veterinarian. But they looked pretty jacked and the snaps showed her getting cozy with more than one of them. How do you think I should approach this situation? It's nice and short and sweet. Yeah, dude, I feel like everybody's going to Miami right now. I don't know if you have the (laughs) same thing with with your friends. (laughs) That's your take? that's that's my take <laughs> it's like everybody's going to crazy miami. everyone's going <laughs> completely to miami unrelated right completely unrelated <laughs> but actually Dude, though like don't you know a lot of i like ashima just went to miami i feel like i've heard of like five yeah. other people i think like tickets are really cheap to florida right now because it's you know it's a hell hole of like disease and sin you know? yeah but while you're there it's like covid doesn't exist but really it's like yeah, yeah a hell it's a hole of covid <laughs> and sin don't forget and sin, sin. <laughs> yeah that is true dude my my thing here is like why do you like emphasize that she was a veterinarian like like (laughs) is there like some like stereotype about veterinarians like not being jacked or like being people who like (laughs) steal your girl or something like yeah the part when it's like they're all pretty jacked like will the take (laughs) be different if they're not jacked like (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) it's like beating the shit out of them is i don't know man bro take They're, they're they're veterinarians man i don't know what they're doing like i was like uh, is he like hallucinating are these are, is he actually just like are these people like dogs like are they actually just dogs like ripped dogs or something like that i don't like even rottweiler i've not been to a vet but like do you think like buff people want to be vets like is that a, is there like That's a like, correlation seems like what the that? insinuation of his yeah also i want to know like are these snaps like are these like stories or are these like direct attacks, you know? Yeah, like these is it like a situation snaps? where you guys have like a passive aggressive kind of argument and then she sends you a snap with one of her like jacked veterinarian friends? Or is it like she's just posting this on her public story kind of situation? Because I think that that might re- reveal something there. I mean, you know, we can already cancel out a few potential options. Like if they're jacked, like, all right, flying down to Florida and beating the shit out of them might not be a possibility. But but yeah. maybe this guy can hire some backup or something, you know? Dude, it is Miami, bro. It's like I know some people down there if he needs to just, you know, talk to me after the show maybe. But Yeah, could be the case. But you're right, dude. Why <laughs> why like I I feel like the fact that he emphasized certain things like the fact they're in a long distance relationship and that like these guys are pretty jacked and they're getting like cozy or whatever. He's clearly feeling very insecure in the relationship. Yeah. And also you don't really know if like she's also doing something to like instigate that, you know? Like it it could be the case where like she's just drunk and posts some pictures with some guys that she met but it could also be the case and it just happened to be like a one-time thing that bugged him 
Or it could be the case that like she knows what she's doing, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's like good to assume the worst of people like that. I feel like he's feeling insecure in the relationship because it's been long distance and like in a vacuum, right? Like mm-hmm. if my girlfriend was hanging out with like a group of male friends, like it, it shouldn't bother you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Like, you should feel secure that like, yeah, it's not a big deal. And the fact that like he doesn't feel that way leads me to believe that he's not getting enough from this relationship or something like that you know what i mean because otherwise he would feel secure if he was getting everything that he needed from the relationship right now yeah that's true but also like what is the definition of cozy here you know like yeah, i feel like there is sure you can always post like it's totally possible to have friends of the other gender or whatever orientation you choose yeah but there is a such thing as being too cozy i will say that much that's true but we don't yeah, we don't know like- how cozy this is is what yeah, I'm we need more context for sure. But it's like I feel like the fact that he emphasized that they're jacked like means that there's like some like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> insecurity there a little. That is hundred you know percent true. That's why I feel like yeah, we don't know what the snaps look like, but I think it's like equally possible that he's kind of reading more into it than what it is. And the reason he's like reading it into it that way is because he doesn't feel like fully happy with the relationship as it's going right now. Right. Yeah. I'm leaning towards your take too. Like given the information provided to us, like seems like he's, he's a little bugged. There must be a bigger problem going on in this relationship. That's what I'm saying. Cause like long distance is, I mean, hard. I mean, I've been in a long distance relationship for a while and like, it's definitely not easy. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I feel like if you're not feeling secure in the relationship, it probably means, like I said, you're not getting what you need from your girlfriend in that situation. I mean, I'm assuming these people like dated in person for a while and then moving long distance Mm -hmm. has been like a big adjustment for them. And like the way that you have to like show love to each other and develop the relationship changes when that happens, right? Every person gives and receives love in different ways too. Like what he might need to feel loved and secure in a relationship might not be exactly what she's giving and vice versa. So it could be that like, I don't think there's anything like wrong with the relationship or the relationship is on the rocks. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it means that they should break up or anything of that sort. Like nothing harsh. But I think he should bring up that, like, this is bothering him, you know? Like, I feel like that's pretty normal to do. Yeah, yeah. Like, he definitely should bring up how he feels to her. But he mm-hmm. should first, I feel like, do some reflection and think, like, what do I feel about this relationship genuinely? Like, what is working about this long-distance situation? And what do I need for it to be better? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And then he can go to her and be like, look, I'm going to be honest. Sometimes when you post, you know, Snapchats with other guys and you don't spend as much time with me or like check in on me, that doesn't make me feel very good and makes me feel like insecure in our relationship. Don't frame it as like you're accusing her because you don't actually know what's what's going going on. on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like I said, like if there's anything I've learned, it's like people have different love languages, right? So I feel like that's like a pretty standard thing. Like you should know about your partner like both of you should and yeah like, like figure what, out what you think yeah how you communicate love to them right yeah when you're in a long distance situation communication is fucked yeah communication's fucked and there's gonna have to be some level of compromise right mm-hmm. like no one is ever gonna have like a perfect way of like loving the other person you know what i mean because yeah, different yeah. people have different ways of doing it So it's like you got to figure out what you need and what you're able to give. And she's got to figure out what she needs and what she's able to give. And just like see if you guys can come to a compromise and, you know, and see if that's a compromise that you're willing to do to like hold on to the relationship, basically. Yeah, exactly, dude. I think you hit it on the head. 
Yeah. Uh, taking for... your consultation, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Being the love hey, doctor I, myself. <laughs> I mean, bro, I'm just, I'm just the resident doctor yeah. here. Yeah, I learned everything from you. I learned it all from you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Do you do you have anything else to add? Well, I think Ash, you really hit it on the head here. Hopefully they can figure out some of their issues. I don't think this is something make or break at all, though. Just something for discussion. The, the love doctor is always here for a follow up. <laughs> always give them a call. All right, guys, thanks for listening again to our sixth episode here. We only have four more episodes left in this first season of Moving to New York. And like we said, after that, we're going to take some time off, reassess, and figure out what we want to do for our upcoming seasons. So uh, follow our Instagram, moving to NYPod, and that's two, like the number two. And I guess the last thing is just keep uh, sending us these love doctor submissions. We love having them. And yeah, I think that's it. So do you have anything else? Yeah, um, I think we'd just like to thank Caroline for coming on, being our great second guest. And yeah. thanks for listening. Thanks for rocking with us, guys. Bye.